Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. Back when I was in high school, my guest was part of the legendary Second City TV crew. And they had the McKenzie brothers, him and Rick Moranis. And it was my freshman or sophomore year in high school, or maybe my junior year. But he is the reason why all of Cherry Hill East called each other hosers. And he's the reason why later we all went on the lookout for Molson Golden. But he's, he's so much more than that. He's a writer. He's written, you know, he's written a novel. He's, he's written for serious TV besides comedy. He's been in hit sitcoms. And my guest is Dave Thomas. How you doing, Dave? How are you? Nice to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. No problem. So uh, so how you feeling? You, you said your back's hurting a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's in spasm right now, so... I, it, it pops up every once in a while, you know. It's a it's a compressed vertebrae, a compressed fracture of a vertebrae that you know, every once in a while that decides to activate the nerves and you know, give me really horrible pain. All right. Well, we'll get through this, and I I want to talk about second sitting a lot, but I want to talk about you. You wrote a novel. With the, the yeah. gentleman who wrote Road to Perdition. And it's so, you know, you think about it, your comedy. I mean, Second City's legendary. Then all of a sudden, you know, people go their ways. But how did you end up writing a novel and how did you team up with him? Because that fascinates me. Well, um, I've always sold my own stuff. And I've always been interested in science fiction. And then I became interested in mystery dramas when I started working for bones and then later the blacklist and um i had this idea for a show and i put together a little pitch and then i i tried it on one buyer and they kind of rolled their eyes back and i thought okay forget this nobody's nobody's this is too weird a concept for network they're not gonna buy it so um i thought so i put it aside and then i I started um, thinking about it more, and I thought, well, maybe I'll write this as a novel. And, uh, you know, I, I write scripts. I, I, I'm i not really a big prose writer. And um, my nose is itching for some damn reason. It's probably some kind of Pinocchio thing where Dave is lying his ass off right now. And... His nose is the giveaway. So anyway, here's the deal. <clears throat> My idea was uh, steeped in the world of quantum physics, which has always been an interest area of mine. So it's about a little thief from South Boston, a second story guy, a B&E uh, thief. And he he's on the run from a Vietnamese drug lord that he owes $5,000 to. And he goes over the river to uh, Cambridge to hide out, blend in with the Harvard crowd. He's a young guy, gets a sweatshirt, and hopes that the Vietnamese drug guy won't kill him, find him and kill him. And then he needs money. So he breaks into a house, and the house that he breaks into turns out to be the home of a physics professor who is doing a quantum physics experiment in his basement. So this little thief breaks into the basement, plugs the wrong cable into the quantum batteries, and then the next thing he knows, he's holding the steering wheel of a car 
in another version of his life in Chicago, about a thousand miles away. Now, this is based on um, the many worlds theory, which was um, it, it, it came up with, with a Princeton physicist in the fifties, and um, the concept of it was that. For every A, B choice, for every binary choice in life, you come to an intersection, you go left or right. The realized choice is your life. And the unrealized choice, this physicist argued, still exists. And so do all the consequences of that choice that would have spun off into an infinite number of, you know, um, complicated uh, universes separate spinning off at every a b choice inside that itself so it was it's sort of um it takes erwin schrodinger's thought experiment of the cat in the box that has a timing device that is set at an undetermined time to either uh, kill the cat or not kill the cat and schrodinger's theory was that the act of observing is what makes the makes it a reality. In other words, until you open the box and see whether the cat's alive or dead, the cat could be in both states. It could be both alive and dead. And um, so this made, you know, other physicists start thinking about this. And next thing, there was this uh, many worlds uh, concept that um, that was hatched by this physics professor. So the idea of having sort of a science reason behind being able to go through a doorway into an alternate version of your life really intrigued me. And then I had to figure out how to make the science of that work because it's sort of like, you know, it's, a, it's an either or. You, you make that decision and then you're part of that universe. Um, and and there were rival physicists who came up with, they were called the Copenhagen School. And um, they, um, they believed that at the AB fork in the road where you've got two choices, the choice that you make becomes your realized reality. And the other choice and all the possibilities that would come from that choice collapse at that time. And um, so anyway, I thought, well, this is an interesting idea. If I could make this a mystery novel where there's that thread sort of running concurrently with the sci-fi thread, it might ground it and make it a little more plausible. You know, in every science fiction um, story, you have to work out the science or you piss off the science fiction fans. And, you know, in time travel um, stories, you got to work out, you got to decide what's your time travel, um, what, what school of scientific thought are you using for your time travel? And if you don't stick to that, you lose your audience, you know? Um, ironically, there's the fiction part of it where, you know, you open the door and then there's the time machine. So that that's the MacGuffin. That's that's the part where the science 
goes away and the fiction begins. So for me, it was this guy's stumbling upon this experiment um, and and it's a theoretical experiment, but this physicist is actually trying to make it a, happen in real world. Um, anyway, um, that's the sort of bedrock for the... And so this guy gets... At the time that he he connects the cables in the basement, he gets shot in the head um, by somebody. We don't know who. Because he broke into somebody's house. So it could be the guy who owns the house. It could be somebody else. It could be a rival thief. There's all kinds of possibilities that um, that pop up there. And, and the fact that he gets shot in the head and doesn't die but goes into a coma gave me the device that would allow him to skip from one version of his life to another. So he starts hopping. So the first reality that he's in, he's a slightly wealthier version of himself in Chicago. And then he becomes a soldier in Afghanistan, and then he becomes a priest, and then he becomes a prize fighter. None of them are, are absurd choices where he goes off and becomes the president of Argentina. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> they have to come from the, the sort of jumping off point of him being a thief in, um, in South Boston that what would a thief had done if he didn't do this? Well, he might have become a boxer. He might have become a he might have gone in and joined the army or become a soldier in Afghanistan. He could have become a priest, you know. So there, I tried to play with the things that would be sort of sensible and logical choices and ground them a little more. And then I had a, a, a mystery running concurrently with it. I haven't talked about this in a long time. So I'm doing a very terrible job of <laughs> selling my concept. Um, but anyway... I'm friends with SpongeBob, uh, Tom Kenny, and he said to me, hey, there's a guy I know who's a huge fan of yours and he would love to talk to you. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, he, he lives in Iowa and he wrote the novel Road to Perdition. His name is Max Allen Collins. And I thought, all right, well, why does that guy, he, well, he's a big fan of your work at SCTV in Second City. And uh, I said, okay, so give me his number. I'll call him. So I called Max, and we started talking. And then it gets to, well, what are you working on now? And I said, well, I, I got this. I started writing a novel. And he said, well, how, how much have you written? And I said, well, I've written about three chapters, about, you know, um, 40 pages, 45 pages. And uh, he said, well, can I read it? And I said, Sure. So I sent it to him and he read it and he said, I love this. He said, I'll, I'll help you get a publisher. I'll help you get a book agent. He said, but what I'd really rather do is write it with you. And I thought, well, he's written over a hundred novels. I've written none. So I'm going to be the, I'm going to benefit from this collaboration far more than he is. So uh, we started writing it, and then we we sort of mapped out the way we were going to go with it. We took my three chapters and made it five, and then did an outline of where the rest of the book would go. And then COVID hit. And then, um, ironically, that's an interesting word to use to describe it. 
when COVID hit, I got sepsis. I went into, I got, had some reaction and my wife found me on the floor in the bedroom with my legs and arms twice their size and got me to the hospital. And they said, uh, we don't think we're going to be able to save him. I was in full on septic shock. So while everybody else is worried about COVID and getting COVID and dying from COVID or surviving COVID or getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated, I'm in the hospital for four months with sepsis and the book had to be suspended during that time because I obviously couldn't do anything. But while I was in the hospital, Max went out and got a publisher deal and uh, an advance for us to write the book. So I was just, when I got out of the hospital, he said, well, I got us a book deal. And I said, Oh shit. And he said, so you want to work on this? And so we, we worked on it like with zoom, like, you know, we never actually met in person. We wrote the whole thing, you know, as a zoom book and uh, a COVID book. And a sepsis, um, a sepsis book. Yeah. So, uh, and it was an interesting collaboration. He turned, he's become a very good friend now. He's, he's a great guy. I love him. I love the way his brain works. He has so many interest areas similar to mine that, um, that it, it, it was a friendship that where, you know, two people are excitedly chatting with each other all the time because there's so much in common and so much to talk about. And um, anyway, so that's how I ended up writing this book. And I enjoyed the process so much. I would get up in the morning and I, you know, we mapped out a road for it where he said, the way I work with other writers when I collaborate is they do the first pass. If it's their idea, if it's mine, I do the first. He said, this is your idea. He said, you do the first pass of each chapter. We can talk about where the chapter might go. He said, and then I'll come in and do my pass after your pass. And I said, all right. So that's what we did. I did the first pass of every chapter and then we'd send it to him and he'd do his pass. And then we'd battle it out over, well, I don't want to say that. I want to say it this way. You know, the usual kind of collaboration stuff, but mostly it was a very good collaboration. And, um, and we finished the book pretty fast. And I enjoyed the process so much that when I finished, I thought, well, now what am I going to do? And I, I had some TV pitches that I was going to do. And I thought, well, I could do that. But I'm sick of that. You know, I, I'm actually sick of a lot of the things that I've done in my career. And I don't want to do them anymore. And um, so I came up with another idea for a book. And I contacted the publisher. And I said, all right, I got this, I got this other idea. What do you think of this? And he said, do you have any of it written out? And I said, yeah, actually, I've, I've been working on it. I've got about um, 100 pages. And he said, well, let me read it. And he read it. And he said, I love this. I'll give you a book deal right away. And he said, um, he said, I just hope that the way you finish this book is as good as the way you started it because it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, and that scared me 
And right away, I stopped writing because I thought, he's right. I'm never going to be able to come up with an ending that's as good as the beginning. So that kind of paralyzed me for a while, you know? Why do you, just think, we, recently why do you think we do that? You know, most creative people do that. They always, when they hear a compliment, you get that fear. I mean, you've had such a successful career. I mean, you know you have the chops. So, I mean, but you still, after all the success, have the, that somewhat of a fear where you're not going to be able to finish it as good as you started it? I honestly believe I'm a hack. I, I don't, I really, throughout most of my career, expected someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you're Dave Thomas, aren't you? You're from Dundas, Ontario. Get the fuck out of here. You don't belong here. You don't belong in Hollywood. Give me that Emmy back. You're, you're not going to win that. That's, that should go to somebody more deserving. So I, I've always felt that, you know, I was this undeserving participant in a game that, that, well, I, that when I was a kid, I really, I wanted to be in show business, like with a real hunger. And, uh, and then, you know, and then when I got in, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, I couldn't believe I still can't. I look back over the stuff that I've done and, you know, people that I admired. Like, I, I used to watch the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And I thought, oh, man, that would be amazing to be on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and have him think I was funny. Well, I did that. I, I was a guest. I, I ended up having lunch with him. Uh, I was a big fan of Bob Hope's and, and I, I ended up. Um, impersonating Bob Hope on SCTV and then meeting him and then and then being asked to be on some of his specials and then and then being invited over to his house and and hanging out with him and I spent an awful lot of time with Bob Hope and it was like the sort of people that I admired when I was a kid like John Cleese I did Rat Race with him and we became friends and you know it's like, it just amazes me that any of that happened to me. And I, I still think that, you know, it's a mistake that it should have happened to somebody else or that I'm, I actually died in my 20s and this is all a dream, it's, you know. You're a, or, you're you know a character I mean? in your book. It's a parallel yeah, yeah, universe. I, I, I don't know, you know. So... So how, how did Second City all start? How did you get involved with that? Your career, I mean, how did you get started? You said you were a kid, you wanted to be a performer. Well, what yeah. steps did you make? I know you were a copywriter for a while, but how did you, how did this whole long, successful, and legendary career begin? Well, probably because of one thing, and mainly one thing. I went to um, a, university, a small college in Canada called McMaster. It's actually big now, and it's got a gigantic medical center attached to it. Um, but anyway, they didn't have a drama school. They didn't have a, a TV department or a film department or anything like that. But I met Eugene Levy and Marty Short. Actually, Ivan Reitman, too. But I met Marty Shorty and Eugene Levy, and they became lifelong friends. And 
they got me into Godspell, which was a Toronto play, and some really remarkable people were in that cast. It was like, you know, Victor Garber, um, Gilda Radner, Andrea Mark, uh, Marty Short, Eugene. You know, it was a pretty, a pretty remarkable cast. And then, and then after Gospel, I couldn't get a job, so I, I put together some fake ads and and went around to ad agencies and ended up getting a job as a copywriter at McCann Erickson. And I was doing pretty well there, actually. And I was in New York. I'd been moved from the Toronto office to the New York office, and I was working with Bill Backer, who's this legendary... He's the guy that Mad Men is based on, you know. Um, and uh, I worked with him and on the Coca-Cola account. And, uh, and then the Second City opened a, a branch in Toronto and Eugene Levy who called me and he said they're holding auditions here and I know this is something that you would be good at and that you've always wanted to do you should come and audition so I left New York and I came back to Toronto and auditioned and it was actually Eugene had been in the company for a few months and then they were starting another company in Pasadena. Uh, and so they were taking some of the cast with them, including Eugene. So it was really, you know, to, to jump into the show uh, with Dan Aykroyd and um, Gilda Radner and John Candy. And, you know, and, and it was like, holy shit. It was exciting to the point of being terrifying. And... Um, I got in. I auditioned and I got in. And so then there were changes in the cast and everything, but I became good friends with Ackroyd because the two of us, we were making 145 bucks a week. And he couldn't believe that I'd quit a job where I was making 75 grand a year to work for 145 a week. And I said, well, I said, they told me I could have that job back if I, if this doesn't work out. So I kind of got a safety net. And, um, and I said, in the meantime, like, so Danny and I started writing com like commercials, retail commercials backstage and during the day when we were in second city together. And we developed a writing relationship. We wrote a screenplay together that almost got made, but it was a sci-fi actually. And, um, Danny's very interested in, you know, the supernatural and aliens, things like that. And um, we got a director named Phil Alden Robinson interested in it. And we almost made it. But then there was another sci-fi about aliens in development at that time with Spielberg, Close Encounters. And that basically blew us out of the running. And so Danny goes to New York to do Saturday Night Live. I stayed in uh, Second City, and then they started SCTV. And so, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. And uh, I was happened to be in Second City when they started a television show. So, I mean, I was very lucky in that respect. And uh, 
got out and then I got to work with these people like Joe Flaherty and John Candy and Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy and later on Rick Moranis and um so you know I I've always been very determined and um sort of generated my own stuff, you know. I I've always got ideas that torment me if I don't write them down. And then when I write them down, it torments me until I can sell them so I can get someone else to validate that this is a good idea. The only way I judge that is if they give me money. It's like, that's when you know it's a good idea is when somebody hands you a check because, (laughs) you know, they're willing to part with cash. So, um, I, I I think it's a combination of being in the right place at the right time and a combination of my personal um, determination. I, I've always written. I, I, you know what I mean? I was a performer in SCTV, but I was the least experienced performer of the entire cast. And, um, but I knew how to write and I, I could, I can candidly say without fear of overstating my case or, or boasting that I could write circles around most of them. Cause I just, I had lots of ideas and I just, and I, and I'd had this sort of fortunate confluence of skill sets that one of the things advertising teaches you is how to be concise. You've got to say everything that you've got to say in 30 seconds. And if you want to try and make it entertaining, you have to find a way of taking the sort of hard sell and the product stuff and the marketing that is part of your job and then find a little, some wiggle room in there to be creative and and entertaining. And so I think that skill set of knowing how to write 30 second spots made me a good fit as a sketch writer. And um, when SCTV started, Harold Ramis was the hired as the head writer. And Harold and I hit it off because he was um, wicked smart. I mean, he was really, really a brilliant man. And he had a, a great reference level. And that was something that was a pet peeve of mine. I thought that, you know, if you write... You, you need info, you need data, you need material, you need to go and research things. You can't write about sharks if you don't know anything about sharks. You can't write about guns if you don't know anything about guns. So that, that's, that's the part where, again, a skill set that I developed as a student, a bad student, but a, a kind of a wily coyote student where... I figured it out. I figured out the system and how to make it work and understood the concept of, of pulling data from like in the case of English literature from novels and poetry that, you know, I would, they would stick with me and I could remember them. And then if I'm writing an exam or something, when you're writing an exam in, um, in college, in the arts, especially in English lit, if you can quote the person 
that you're talking about, you get instant points from the teacher. You know what I mean? Because there's so many. And I, I went on and I ended up having to teach first year uh, English uh, students when I got a scholarship and a graduate assistantship to do an MA. And I'm, when you, most of the, the kids who are writing these things are just, they, they're morons. They're, they're writing really bad, unsubstantiated, you know, ill-informed. It shows that they don't do the work, they don't know anything, and that they're just on a free ride. And, you know, and I, as a teacher, I would see how that would, how that could piss people off. And my father uh, was a philosophy professor. He taught philosophy at the school. So I learned a lot from him, too, about, you know, um, what teachers look for in answers and what, you know, academics look for in any kind of theory that you might have about, you know, what a theme in a, in a particular piece is and how to substantiate your claims, things like that. So I, I think I got very lucky from doing an English lit degree, from being a copywriter in advertising, from then jumping to being a sketch writer on SCTV, and then expanding that to longer forms. And then the combination of the really incredibly talented people that I got to work with. So, I mean, no. that's why I worry that someone's going to tap me on the shoulder, even in my 70s, yeah. and send me home. Get out of here, dude. I have a question for you, though. You said, you know, you, you felt, you know, they're going to tap you on the shoulder. When you were writing in the early days of SCTV, were yeah. you comfortable writing for yourself, or did you just want to write for everyone else? Because a lot of times people, I mean, what was what was your feeling on that? Well, later on, I, I, I went on and sold shows and did shows, and I can always spot somebody who was um, an improv sketch writer because they wrote for themselves. And that's, that's what they did. I didn't do that because uh, I liked the concepts. To me, the concept was the thing and the performance was second, which sadly made my performances suffer because I don't think that if I'd been more of a sketch writer uh, from the sort of improvisational school of writing for myself, that I might have served myself better as a performer. But I didn't really care about what I did as a performer because I liked the idea. And uh, I would get, that would be the mark of a sketch to me. Um, when Joe Flaherty was a great writer, but he was incredibly lazy and not motivated. But that was okay, because I had enough motivation for both of us. And I could get the benefit of his brilliance in a collaboration with him just by going to his house and picking him up having a cup of coffee in the car. You know what I mean? The stuff that was important to him and to me it was just like, come on, come on, let's get going. we got to get this done here. And, um, but we wrote, you know, we started writing sketches and, and Harold's concept of this little network that presents its programming day in half an hour 
which was the original concept of SCTV, I thought was a really brilliant and very serviceable. It wasn't actually Harold's idea. It was Del Close's idea. But still, Harold was the one who made it work, you know, um, and understood the concept and how to apply it. And um, I, I forget where I was going with this, actually. Um, about writing, you like the whole process. Oh, oh, okay. So there's sort of stages and some things happen with that, um, with the with SCTV, the sort of evolution of the show. Um, first of all, Bernie Sons, who is the sort of um, Second City guru who had been there from the very beginning in Chicago and had brought along, Bernie was a real academic, and he was kind of like uh, he 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 immediately saw the television opportunity as a way to take what he did on stage and put it on television. And unfortunately, that was the wrong thing to do because most of the stuff that we did on stage didn't translate to television. There's a kind of uh, <clears throat> suspension of disbelief in the theater experience where you're sitting in a room with people and you're saying, we take you now to a, uh, um, a veterinary clinic, you know? And so they're imagining it and you're imagining the props and you're suspending disbelief to see if these actors are going to be able to make it work in television. You have the sets and the props and you are in a veterinary clinic and so you can't, you don't get the benefit of that suspension of disbelief and you don't get the benefit of that sort of like uh, intimate kind of uh, um, club experience that, that spawns a specific type of material that I don't think translates for television. So in the beginning of SCTV, there was a bit of a battle going on primarily between me and Bernie. But Eugene, too, was on my side because Eugene understood television and understood that the tele the stage experience didn't translate directly to television. And so we were trying to get Bernie off that. And, um, and then once we did get him off that, then we found ourselves dealing with, okay, so now we've got our programming day. How are we going to break this down? So we can't do whole shows. So, but one of the things that people were exposed to and familiar with was promos. So we could do promos for shows that would be like a sketch. So we could be do snippets of something and tell a story and sell a concept. We could do commercial parodies. We could do promos. We could do little mini shows like, you know, um, a sunrise semester or something like that, uh, a way of opening the show or closing the programming day. Um, and so that gave us our structure. But then what happened was we, we had no money in our budget for guest stars. And Joe Flaherty was the first one to come up with the idea. He did an impersonation of Peter O'Toole, the, was spot on, but what I loved about it was it was like, oh, it was like a light bulb went off. It was just like, oh, 
we can sell this as a television network because we can become the guest stars with our with we're going to start impersonating people that we can do so that started happening so that was like step one step no step two or three step one was getting it away from the stage experience then step two was taking what we had as the elements for our programming day and making them work and then step three was populating the landscape with you know impersonations of stars that gave it some reality and then that gave us depth too because we could drill down into you know what was peter o'toole like what kind of movies did he do what kind of personality was he like what kind of character what was bob hope like what were his specials like what were and so on we we could really we could service that and get a lot of mileage out of it and then we did something else that became something that i think defined sctv and Joe Flaherty and I came up with this concept for a sketch called Fantasy Island. And we were basically just ping-ponging, ping-ponging ideas back and forth. And it, we realized that, well, we can actually start with this concept of Fantasy Island, which was a television show with Ricardo Montalban as this guest that it would guess people would come to the island and live out their fantasies. And then the fantasies we thought could be a show within a show. So we could then do a parody of Casablanca inside the parody of Fantasy Island. And then inside the parody of Casablanca, we could do um, Road to Rio or Road to, you know, whatever, with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. And then, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden, we were able to sort of stack, stack stuff on top of each other and really expand the sketch format to something that it had never been before. And I was really fascinated with that because that was like, okay, anytime you can do something that's creatively satisfying, that's fantastic. But if you can do something that's creatively satisfying, but also that people that, that nobody's ever done before, that, that's that's really um, uh, that's motive. That's inspiring. That 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 really gets the juices going. So um, and so then it, it became. We started even condensing it and and taking like you know in the title of shows. We, we did a sketch called the Benny Hill Street Blues. So we took <laughs> Hill Street Blues and the Benny Hill Show and put them together. And what would that look like? And that became the sort of cornerstone of what defined the sketches and the tone and the material on SCTV. You know, a lot of people will say, well, SCTV... Uh, was better than Saturday Night Live or SCT Saturday Night Live was better than SCTV. Well, the, they were different. They were just different. The show, Lauren Michaels shot, and, and I did the show called The New Show with him, which he did exactly like Saturday Night Live, and it was like, so he was, his concept of how he did it became very apparent to me at that time. And, it, and it's, 
this is the best way to sort of summarize it. I always wondered why the performances on SNL, people were kind of looking up. They weren't looking down at the other players. They were looking up. I was like, well, what the fuck? why are they looking up like that? And then I realized when I actually got there to Studio 8H in New York, that the gallery, the audience is stacked up on bleachers and they're looking up at the audience and that they're playing this as a stage show that's being televised for the audience. The audience laughter is the common experience that, you know, the people at home, instead of a laugh track, the people at home are supposed to sort of feel like they're part of this live. So being live was a very important element in Lauren's concept, but also the performances tended to be bigger and broader uh, because they were live, because they were pitched for this audience and because they were pitched up. And at SCTV, we had more of a film style of sketches where we would shoot, you know, in pieces and we would do multiple takes until we got the take that we liked, you know, whatever the budget would allow us to do. And, um, and so that made it, those things made the, sh the shows inherently different in the way they were uh, written, performed, produced, you know, they were totally different shows. And um, what I think defined SCTV more than the shooting style, which was, you know, like more like film or television shows were shot at that time. What I thought that defined SCTV was this sort of, uh, juxtaposition and stacking of concepts inside concepts, you know. It's it's very sort of uh, Shakespearean, you know. It's the play within the play. It, 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 it was a new... I never saw them on a show of shows or any of the sketch shows, Laugh-In, or any of the shows that preceded SCTV. So I was very, very pleased that we were the pioneers and able to do this. Um... So this is a probably very theoretical and more more than you actually were looking for. I think. No, I love it. Asked, I, no, I love I love the science of comedy. My background. I did stand up comedy for eight years on the road, and I we would, you know, you you, you love the science of comedy. What's fascinating is though, you know, when you talk about SCTV, so much talent came out of it, and everyone went on to these great careers. And uh, the weird thing is, for for you as as an actor. In the beginning, people really got to know you as one of the McKenzie brothers, which I heard was actually that, that was was that sketch like just a, a throwaway sketch, or how'd that happen? Yeah, it was um, it, it was to completely improvise. We never wrote a single one, and um, they were all exactly two minutes long. And um, the concept of it was that it, it was conceived in the third season of the show, and the sort of mechanics of it was that the Canadian version of the show that was on CBC was two minutes longer than the American version that was on the NBC and who knows. And the reason for that was that the American version had two minutes more commercial content. So CBC said, and they're always waving the flag with their, with their, um, 
programming and they said you know we we want you to make this uh this extra two minutes distinctly canadian and i was like what the fuck you know <laughs> and, and i was head writer at the time and i was kind of pissed that i got other things to do than you know start helping them with their uh, relationship with the canadian version of the fcc and um which is called the crtc and I, I very, I was sitting with Rick and one of us or both of us said, so what do you want us to do? Put up a map of Canada and have two and sit in front of it with uh, wearing toques and parkas and fry up back bacon and talk about Canada. Is that what you want? And the, they said, yeah. And actually, if you could put a Mountie in that sketch, that would be even better. And, um, it was like, okay, fine, fuck off. And so we improvised these, and we did them at the end of, Rick was the only one who went, nobody else in the cast wanted to do it. And Rick said, oh, he said, I'll ride shotgun with you on this. And, and it was really like, you know, he, he had come into the show in the third season and, um, and brought with it, brought with him this, his incredible smarts. And this energy that the show didn't have, because, you know, we had got beat up in the first two seasons and, you know, realized that we weren't the greatest thing since sliced bread and everybody wasn't waiting to see us TV. It was a hard sell. And uh, it became it became a cult hit late in its run, but the first three years were pretty tough. And... Um, but Rick, Rick and I did these things, and so they were exactly two minutes long because that was the difference in programming time. And we got this map of Canada, and I forget whose idea it was. Probably Rick's, but it was like Great White North. And, um, and then the first ones that we did were more political than the later ones because we were really going after the CBC and trying to teach them a lesson, you know what I mean? With with our little two minutes of programming, we're going to make them regret that they ever asked us to do this. And um, and then, of course, backfired and became a, a big success. And you know, it's very strange the way things like that happen. But um, but the floor director would count us in. We'd shoot these usually at the end of the week. The rest of the cast would go home. Um, most of the crew would leave because we were shooting against a flat. We really mostly shot with one camera, so there'd be a floor director, a cameraman, a switcher up in the booth, and then us. And um, we would drink real beer. It was like happy hour because it was like, what the fuck? This doesn't matter. We're just going to make this up. So, and we would, that theme that we did at the beginning of the show was a stall. That, that was basically to give us time to think of something that we were going to do. Because we would start these, and frequently, I remember Rick would turn to me and he'd go, You got anything? And I, I would just go, No. <laughs> Nothing. And it's just in five, four, 
three. So we're like, I got, we got enough. And so I would do the call and then that would be the stall and then we would get into it. And a lot of them didn't work. A lot of them were just bad. And, uh, but from the producer's point of view, um, we would shoot uh, maybe 10 or 15 of these things and it would take about an hour of studio time no no sets or props or other actors or extras or anything like that it was very very cost efficient programming and um if we shot for an hour we'd maybe get two of them that were good that we could air and the rest we'd throw out which is a shame because i wish we had kept those I would love to see some of the ones that didn't work now because I bet in that strange sort of perverse comedy way of things that don't work, uh, kind of work because they don't work. Do you know what I mean? Right. That there might have been something funny about that. Why do you think that the McKenzie brothers just blew up in America? Because, I mean, you know, I still, I live outside Philadelphia, and I, I still, you know, I moved back from L.A. five years ago, and, and I still hear the Christmas song on the radio station that played it back when it came out. What do you think endeared you guys to the Americans so much? Because you guys just, I mean, you blew up. You were giant here. As I said earlier, everyone in our high school is calling each other hoser. And we never knew what this was before, but what do you think it was? Well, I'm sure it's a number of things. And that I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface by giving you some theories of what I think it could be. But back then, um, the concept of cable television uh, and sort of public access TV was in its infancy. This is the sort of uh, great-great-grandfather of reality, reality television. And um, I remember there was a show, there was a show in New York on in 1984, Channel J or something, and it was basically just soft porn, and it was hosted by a porn star. So there was like, people were like watching weird shit on public access television, and so we tapped into that. That was, that was our the world that we tapped into for where Bob and Doug would be broadcasting from. Then the concept of um, doing a show about nothing where it's clearly not about anything except Bob and Doug in their own little world. Um, Dave Foley from Kids in the Halls said he thought Bob and Doug was the best example of uh, smart guys playing dumb guys. And, you know, he thought that that uh, had something to do with why it worked. I don't know. I do think that um, that Bob and Doug were very savvy in their own little world, you know. And um, they were versions of our personalities and um, and we had to kind of 
come up with programming concepts that, you know, related to the world of these two guys, which was basically, you know, donuts, beer, coffee, you know, winter, um, things that people in the Northeast of the United States could relate to. Um, and, um, and I think that uh, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein, who were like showrunners on The Simpsons, I, I worked with them uh, on The Simpsons, but on other stuff, I gave them their first job, actually. I was always finding young writers that I thought were talented and working with them, and that was part of the fun of doing shows for me. Uh, they said that they thought that they were charming. They said they thought that they're very non-threatening. That they were like Muppets. That that they had this these parkas and earmuffs and toques and you know um, they were uh, like the two characters in the Muppet Show in the balcony. You know they were very non-threatening, fun, make, doing a commentary on themselves and you know I think they're. There's a lot of possible ways, but they're all after the fact things, you know. I remember one of the things that um, one of the things I always thought was interesting when I was a this is, comes where you try to interpret or lay meaning on something after the fact, and you know, um, I did a lot of work in Shakespeare and at an undergrad level and also at a graduate level. And, you know, there's a lot about, you know, well, what Shakespeare was doing here was what he was, the themes that he was playing with here were, and I don't think that that's true. I wrote this sketch with Rick Moranis for SCTV called Shake and Bake, which was a backstage at the Old Globe, and it was Sir Francis Bacon and William Shakespeare, and basically I played Shakespeare as a sweating weasel who was trying to come up with um, ways to keep an angry audience from storming backstage and killing them. And, um, you know, the themes that literary critics give him credit for might not have been actually what was driving him at the time, you know what I mean? And I think the interpretations that I might give for what made Bob and Doug work are really after-the-fact interpretations and may not actually have any real merit at all. You know, they, the fact is, Rick and I were filling programming time. It had to be exactly two minutes long. And we were making fun of Canadian content. That's it. That's what drove us. The specifics of what each sketch that we did was or how they maybe fit into a into a larger picture that somebody might be able to put some sort of thematic meaning to i i don't know that that was even at play there i think we were just trying to fill time and um make each other laugh and come up with things that we thought were amusing you know like um so yeah i, I don't know i mean there were people in the cast, I know that John Candy, 
Joe Flaherty went through a period where they thought somehow I had used um, my position of head writer to try and engineer the success of Bob and Doug. And I said, no. I said, if I was that smart, I would have done it again. But, you know, you can't ever, you can't ever do, you can't ever predict what people are going to like or why they're going to like it. You can't ever predict how, whether some, what would make something work or what. You can give it your best efforts and try to, but you can't ever, like that show had a kind of a, a visceral connection with the audience that, boy, I wish I could duplicate that, but I, Unsmart enough to be able to do that. Yeah, you know, I got to ask you, you know, because we were talking about Second City, you've had such a, you've had such a big career. You know, you were you were on Grace on the Fire. You've been acting. You know, you, you've done comedy bits. I know it's funny. You had a variety show in L.A. that my buddy Lance was a runner on. He said he used to take John Candy to the set. He told me that it was like in 1990 because he said, "Oh my God, I used to." And he said John was always nice, and he goes, "Where's Lance? Where's Lance?" And uh, you had all this career in comedy. But then when you look into in later years, how did Bones, Blacklist, and even a Hallmark movie, because my wife watches that and loves it, and I know John Cap- John Kapolos told me, he goes up and does the Hallmark movies, he said he loves it, because he goes up, <laughs> it's easy work, they're good. But how did you do that transition from years of comedy to all of a sudden, which Bones was had some comedy in it, but the Blacklist is pretty dark. So how did that whole transition happen? Is it just because, as you said earlier, you know, you, you were you getting tired of just the comedy realm, or did you just want to do something different? Well, okay, comedy changed around about the time that I went into Bones, maybe just a little before then. Um, combination of the sort of uh, the growth of political correctness and, you know, the boundaries that political correctness put on comedy, the things you could say and things you couldn't say. And um, and I found that very frustrating because it's hard enough to be funny, but to then have to be funny within within a lane on a freeway that you can't go out of because of political correctness, that, that makes the job, it makes it not fun. It's just not fun. And part of the fun of comedy, I think, and the job of comedy has always been to kind of push the boundaries. It's to, you know, go as far as you can on issues without losing the audience, you know, where you step on their toes or their beliefs and and whatnot, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I always liked dark comedy. I had a real soft spot for it. I wrote a piece for SCTV at the very beginning of SCTV. And it was a commercial parody. And it was for a thing by the Ronco, the TV mail order company, Ronco company. It was called the Pocket Pal. And it was a little handheld device that would warn you when you're on an airplane of an impending midair collision. Now, because of my background in advertising, I really love the concept that warning passengers of a midair collision and giving them five seconds before the midair collision 
to shit their pants and panic because there's nothing they can do is a classic American marketing device where, you know, what is the stupidest product we can come up with that has no consumer benefit whatsoever? The pocket pal. And so the concept of it is, you know, I do the pitch for it and I say, say how, how it works, some bullshit stuff about how it works. And then I say, you know, um, wouldn't it be great to be the first to know? And, and then I just turned on the rest of the passengers in the cabin and say, look at her crash into an L-1011. And then everyone starts screaming and I hold up the pocket pal. And so I wrote that. And Bernie Sons, who was, I was struggling with him about, with the transition between theater and television at that time. He said, they're not going to run that pocket pal piece. And I said, why? He said, it's too dark. It's too scary. People are afraid of midair collisions. And I said, well, that's the point of the bit. <laughs> and so anyway, I was talking to Dan Aykroyd about that. And Dan said, oh, what the fuck? He said, that's a hilarious idea. He said, give me that idea. I'll, I'll do it on SNL. You'll be the first non-staff writer to get a piece on SNL. So I gave it to Dan. Dan did it on SNL. And then, and this really pissed me off. It aired, and Bernie comes to me, and he goes, I saw one of our pieces on SNL. What's the, what's the, what's the deal? What's, what's the meaning of that? And I just snapped at him. I just said, you fucking bastard. I said, look. I said, first of all, I got no money for that. I gave it to Danny. Secondly, you turned it down. You see, you didn't want to run it. So they, they had the balls to run it on SNL, and that's, Something maybe you should look to that, you know, you don't have enough balls to write to do things on your show that another show that's very successful, more successful than our show, um, has the balls to do. So anyway, I forget what this was the answer to. We were talking about you were upset, not upset, just comedy. Oh, dark stuff. Comedy gotten too safe and you like the dark comedy. I always like the dark comedy. And I always like pushing the edges. And so when we got to that sort of politically correct corridor um, around 2010, maybe a little before that, I just thought, all right, I'm out. I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. And a friend of mine, Hart Hansen, who was the creator of Bones, said, you should write a Bones script. And I said, really? And I, it was like an interesting challenge. And I said, he said, yeah. He said, come up with um, come up with five ways, really bizarre ways that somebody could be, somebody could be killed. And um, so I did. And he picked one of them. He laughed his head off. He said, he said, can you write a script on this one? And I said, yeah. And he, he said, you know how to write for Bones? I said, yeah, I'll have to watch a couple episodes to kind of get the dynamics of the characters and how they relate. But anyway, so I wrote this script and they bought it and liked it. And then um, Hart and Stephen Nathan, who was running the show for him at that time, said, why don't we offer him a job as a consulting producer? He can write scripts for us and help us with the other scripts 
we do. So they made me an offer, and I'd never worked on somebody else's show before. I'd basically just done my own stuff up to that point. And um, so they made me an offer, and I said, yeah, okay, sure. Well, I had a great time. I really enjoyed working on that show. And um, and enjoyed working with those people. And so we did that for three years. And then Bones was going to end. And in the last season, um, I got an offer from the Blacklist to go over and do that show. So I went and did that show. So, the, I mean, that's how that happened. But it, but it, it came from a mindset where I was looking for a way to do something other than comedy. Don't forget, I mean, I've written scripts. I've written movie scripts. I've written long-form stuff. I wrote Spies Like Us with Ackroyd. We wrote the first three drafts of that. You know, I, I wrote a ton of movies for Mike Metavoy when I was first starting out. The first script I ever wrote in L.A. was a... Uh, adaption of a Calvin Trillin book called Broomstruck for uh, Columbia Pictures. And um, uh, and that was, um, that got me, that, that job got me other jobs. You can do a lot of rewriting and um, unproduced work, and you can make a tremendous living writing stuff that never gets made in Hollywood. <laughs> it's it's really funny, you know? And I made a, a lot of money writing scripts that didn't get made. And I wrote a script for Joel Silver when he was starting out. And that was um, different in, in, uh, than the normal comedies that I would write, you know? So, um, yeah, and, and I, I did some network TV pilots. Um, I did a very dark pilot about two teenage bounty hunters, and um, and then I did another one about a a, a robot that um, runs away. They develop it with a fifth generation computer brain so that it can basically think for itself, and the military that it was developing it for. When it finds out the robot can think for itself, they're like, no, 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 that's exactly what we don't want. We already have soldiers who think for themselves. We we want our robots, robots to just follow orders. So they decide to dismantle the robot's brain, and the robot escapes. And it becomes picaresque. He's on his way to Washington to meet the president and ask him if he can keep his brain. So it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit of Wizard of Oz, but it's very dark. And um, I I was friends with Stan Winston, who did um, the robotics for Terminator, um, Predator, Alien, and um, special effects, makeup stuff. And I, and I said, I Columbia Pictures Television, is, I did this for uh, Columbia Pictures, and they're trying to get me to use these special effects people that did this show called V and it was horrible. He said, Oh yeah, don't, you can't do it. I said, so will you do it? And he said, Oh, 
He said, how much money you got in the budget? I said, I think about 75 grand. And that was like way below his asking price. What he did is a favor. And um, so he built the robot, robot's head. And um, um, and we used an actor named Charles Rocket, who had been on Saturday Night Live as the robot. Charlie did a great job. And then the, and then the guy chasing him, from for the government was Chuck Connors, the rifleman, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I did that for CBS, and and it was a show for this president of CBS named Harvey Shepard, who had become friends with. I did a, a special with him from Cleveland in 1980, and um, and he bought it, and then. You know, when they shot, we shot the pilot and then, uh, when it, uh, they, when they aired all their pilots for William Paley, Paley sees this thing about a runaway robot. What the hell is this? Why is this on my network? Who approved this? And so it died, died a miserable death. The other one, the B-Men, the bounty, two teenage bounty hunters, that got produced and, um, and then they ordered six of them, but they they back ordered it, and I already had another job directing a movie with John Travolta, so um, so I didn't do it, uh, and it fell apart. So now, now will you come back to comedy? I mean, what's your you know you're driving? I mean, you said you know you you retire, and we're we're still in that climate, but I think the climate's changing. Do you want to come back into doing comedy again, or are you fine doing the dramas and then writing the novels? What would you like to see in your future? I don't know. I mean, most of the shows that I like are streaming shows. You know, I like Ozark. I like those sort of situations where normal people get put into weird situations, you know. Um life-threatening, dark. Uh, the pilot that my son and I sold that we're developing right now is kind of like that. It's very dark, like Barry or Ozark. And, um, yeah, so probably it would be something like that. You know, it would be a... If it was a comedy, it would be a very dark comedy, you know. And it doesn't have to be a comedy. I don't. I don't want to be um, tied to that, right? If if that's. I have I have one more final question for you, Dave. I always ask this for my guests. Tell me, sure. tell me a good Hollywood story that happened to you. One that just is going to be a, a good story. People always have great stories, and uh, just tell me a good story. What kind of story do you want? Something that happened on set or something that happened to you in public, just something that happened to you that you, you just, it makes you laugh or you have a very fond memory of it. Um, hmm. Well, so there was a guy named Irving Fine. He was George Burns' manager. And after George Burns had done the old God movies, even though he's like in his 90s or something, 
he's still out there like looking to develop things. And uh, so my agent uh, sends me in to meet with Irving Fine. And I said, well, what is this? And I said, am I supposed to pitch him something? He said, no, no, no. This is, they call these generals. This is a general meeting. It's a general meeting. You're not going to, um, you're not going to have to pitch any. I said, okay. So anyway, I get in there to Irving Fine's office. He's on the, I think it was the, uh, hold on a second. Phone's reading. That wrecks the story, doesn't it? Uh, so anyway, I get into Irving Fine's office, and he, he had an office on one of the studio lots. I forget which one it was. And um, I sit down, and he goes, so what do you got for me? I was like, my agent said this was a general. You know, now he's saying, what do you got for me? And you can't. Irving Fine's an old guy, too. So you, it's a waste of time to try and get into it with an older guy like that. That's, no, this wasn't supposed to be, this was supposed to be a general meeting, you know. What, what do you got for me? So I said, I just figure I'll make something up. <laughs> so I said, so we open on an airplane. And George is sitting in a nice, big, comfortable first class chair. He's first class, he's God. I mean, God gets to fly first class, right? And I said, then, Three guys come up to the first class bathroom and go in. And then they come out of the bathroom with black hoods on. They're like terrorists. So I said, now you got terrorists trying to take over a plane and God is the passenger. And he's, he looks at me and he goes, no. No, 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 no. You must have said no about 10 times. <laughs> and I just said, okay, no. And I get up. I figured this is over. This meeting's over. And I start heading towards the door. And he said, wait a minute. He said, what if you go to the cockpit of the airplane and Sitting at the controls of the airplane is Charlton Heston. So now you've got God in first class and Moses <laughs> as the pilot. And I just looked at him and I went, no, no, no. I got about three or four of them out and he just said, get out. And that that's, was the end of my meeting. That's awesome, Dave. I want to thank you so much. For, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show. People, go go check out Dave's website, uh, DaveThomas.com. You can have all his info. Go buy his novel. Go buy The uh, the Many Lives of Jimmy Layton. And, uh, it's on go, Amazon. It's on Amazon. 899. Incredible bargain. There you go. So go go and go look at all Dave's old work. You'll, you'll love them. Um, go to my website. You can hear over 900 episodes, coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.